the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, there was a famous film many years ago starring Frank Sinatra. And at one point in the movie, there was a line as he's pondering the possibility of becoming a father for the very first time. And he opines that you can have fun with a son, but you've got to be a father to a girl. Well, there's a degree to which that might be true. But from the broader perspective, I think most today would argue that Boys and girls both need a solid male role model, a father in their life. And, of course, God designed it that way. And as we look at the many struggles that we see with the American family today and the difficulties in society, quite often we draw the conclusion that it's either an absent father or a father who grew up lacking the proper modeling from his own parents in order to really understand what it means to be a husband and a father and a man. Taking a look at this topic today, a new book entitled Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, and its author, our guest today on Lifeline, and certainly no stranger to KFAX listeners, he's Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today, heard weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And Dennis, as always, a thrill to have you on the program. Craig, great to be with you. We love the Bay Area and uh, have a ton of listeners out there. We're thrilled to be on your your station. And great for the opportunity to talk about this new book, a, a book that I think, you know, dealing with a topic that perennially seems to be a challenge to our society today. Uh, it's amazing how oftentimes women will call up to a program like mine, and I'm sure you at Family Life Today hear it all the time. They'll just say, I only wish my husband would be a father, or if he could just learn how to be the man of the household. Why is it that this seems to be, for growing numbers of men in our society today, so problematic that they don't understand what it means to be a courageous man? Well, I think for the past... Uh well, at least three decades and maybe four, men have been fair game to make fun of, to pull out the gender blender culture that we have and kind of homogenize men and women together and say, other than the obvious physical differences, there really are no differences between the sexes. And God made them male and female. He made them uh, to be two distinct sexes with different assignments and certainly some mutual responsibilities. But I think a lot of men today are confused. They don't know how to do manhood. And as a result, they don't have a vision for what it looks like. And what I did, Craig, was about 12 years ago, I I decided I was going to write a book to men and come alongside them and call them to courageous manhood and encourage them in the process. Not beat them up, not take them to task, not shame them, not blame them. But just say, come on, you can do this thing. Let me give you a vision of what it looks like and talk about some steps that a man needs to take in his lifetime. And I'll tell you, Craig, I thought it was going to be an easy assignment, but I had four false starts in writing this book. And finally, on the fifth time, I was able to uh, get it right. And uh, we've slung it out there, and it's really been flying out the door. We had over 20,000 copies sold in a little over 
three and a half, four months. Wow. And, and, you know, when we think of this topic, I wonder how much of the problem, beyond the fact that there's been uh, a breakdown in the, the lineage of role modeling from father to father to son and so forth down through the generations, then, too, I wonder, Dennis, from your research, is part of the problem here, too, also a, a false understanding of what manhood means? I, I'm thinking, of, for example, a lot of the exaggerated Hollywood images, you know, the guy covered in tattoos that smashes aluminum cans on his forehead, and that somehow is an image of modern-day masculinity. You know, I think to answer that question, I'll just take you to the five steps, because I think the answer is found as I kind of walk my way through them. Um, I believe there are five steps a man was designed to have before him as he goes through life. The first one is boyhood. Uh, He's designed by God to step out of boyhood into adolescence. That's the second step. And Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, um, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I behaved as a child, but when I became a man, he said, what, what did he say? I put away childish things. And so God designed a man not to stay on the boyhood or the, the adolescent step, but to step up to the manhood step and not, not straddle with one foot in manhood, one foot in adolescence standing sideways. I believe he designed us to turn our backs on youthful lust, on wanting to play games, on wanting to uh, abdicate responsibility and assume the responsibility of what it means to be a man, get a job, get married, raise children, become a father, and not just father children, but raise children with purpose. And then there's those two final steps that I have that most men don't realize are out there and don't, don't experience the bonus and the benefit of, but there's the mentor, the mentoring step, and then there's the patriarch step. God designed men, I believe, Craig, to to multiply their lives out. That's what it that's what it means to be a mentor. Paul wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy two two, he said, These things which you have heard from me and trust to faithful men who will teach others also. There were four generations there. God made men to be a mentor and to be mentored. Every man listening to my voice right now ought to have a couple of younger men who he's mentoring, reaching down, calling him up, and he ought to have one or two older men in his life that are calling him up. We all need it. We were all designed by God to not only help others learn and become disciples, but we were also called to be learners as well and to be disciples of Jesus Christ too. So lacking all of this, I mean, it's easy to see that one of the the fundamental problems then in developing a biblical understanding of what manhood means, that courageous manhood, as you talk about inside the book, is that what we're we're either skipping some of these stages or steps or we get them out of order or or perhaps just simply get stuck. Well, you know, I'm going to read you something from the book, and it's not something I wrote. It's from an advertisement, and I'll not tell you who who did the advertisement until I finished the piece. But it's, it's an, unlikely, an unlikely source to be writing something so pithy about being a man. Here, here it is. Once upon a time, men wore the pants and wore them well. Women rarely had to open doors, and little old ladies never had to cross the street alone. Men took charge because that's what they did. But somewhere along the way, the world decided it no longer needed men. Disco by disco, latte by foamy, non-fat latte, men were stripped of their khakis, 
and left stranded on the road between boyhood and androgyny. But today there are questions our genderless society has no answers for. The world sits idly by as cities crumble, children misbehave, and those little old ladies remain on one side of the street. For the first time since bad guys, we need heroes. We need grown-ups. We need men to put down the plastic fork, step away from the salad bar, and untie the world from the tracks of complacency. It's time to get your hands dirty. It's time to answer the call of manhood. It's time to wear the pants. Now, Craig, that was an advertisement for jo- for Docker's jeans. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd, writ- I- I'd written that myself. Absolutely. I mean, talk about an accurate depiction. I mean, as you were reading that, Dennis, I thought, boy, so much of this summarizes what has been the the feminization of manhood and the masculinization of femininity. And, and Craig, I think within the chest of men, there is a desire to do the courageous thing. I think they really do want to take the step up and make the difference in the world God designed them to make. Today at lunch, I had lunch with a guy who um, uh, I had met uh, as a result of of having a problem in in my life that I needed a professional to help me with, and he possessed the skills I needed. And in the process of him fixing what I needed to have fixed, I gave him this book. He calls me back two days later, and he goes, I couldn't put it down. He said, Dennis, the reason is... They handed me two babies when I became a father, and there were no instructions Mm -hmm. on them. I didn't know what it meant to be a man, a husband, or or a daddy now. How do I do this thing? And so I think we we kind of reserve heroism and uh, courageous acts for soldiers on a battlefield, which certainly that occurs. But I think today, Craig, some of the most heroic acts that are occurring are men who are pushing away from pornography. They're assuming their responsibility as husbands. They're taking on the, the load of the covenant that they made with their, with their wives when they got married a number of years ago, and they say, I will not quit. I will love you as Christ loved the church. I'll nourish you. I'll cherish you. I'll face this issue we've got with debt, with illness, with a child, and we'll face it together. And that's the kind of courage that's needed today. And um, I just think men long for another man to come alongside and put his arm around him and say, you can do this thing. You really can. A look at Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. Its author, our special guest on this edition of Lifeline, Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today. You can get more information about the ministry online at familylife.com. That's familylife.com. And, of course, tune into the program weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dennis Rainey on his new book, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our very special guest. He's Dennis Rainey, host of Family Life Today. Again, the new book, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, available through Bay Area Christian Bookstores as well as through the Family Life website, familylife.com. That's familylife.com. 
Com. You know, just before the break, Dennis, we were talking a bit about uh, learning how to act in a courageous fashion. And you mentioned some of the things that are besetting the American family today, whether we're talking about uh, kids that are trapped under the force of peer pressure that leads to sexually acting out, rebellion, pornography, drugs, the whole list. Some people might say, well, it just seems as if sin is more abounding these days. I have to wonder, Dennis. In the grand scheme of things, is it a case where somehow there's more sin let loose on the world today, or is part of this just a lack of light? In other words, could we stem the tide? Could we turn the direction of what's happening in our society and in the American home today if more men would step up, be a a, a husband to the wives, be a father to their children, do the kind of, of mentoring and modeling that is necessary, and in particular, help young boys and girls understand what their responsibilities ought to be and where the limits should be? Great question. And uh, I'm going to let Isaiah, I'm going to let Isaiah answer or cast a little light on the answer. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah is talking about how bad the day was. He says, we growl like bears, we moan like doves. They're looking at the injustice, the lack of mercy in the culture, and it's just causing a grief that that just causes people to shrivel up and, and to just retreat. And then it says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. The picture here is that things get so bad that the, the righteous stand away from the battle with their arms folded going, you know, it's just too bad. This is all going bad. This is just, it's really, you know, we're the, oh, there's a lot of evil taking place. And then listen to what he says. He says, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and a brightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The picture here that Isaiah paints is that truth is not standing up erect in the street for people to see the standard. Instead, it's flat on its face. It's stumbled in the streets. And it says, as a result, uprightness can't enter. And then it says, truth is lacking, and as a result of truth lacking, it says, people who were actually designed by God to prey upon evil, to push back against evil, the very evil we were meant to conquer, turns around and preys upon us. It says, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I I think the problems that we're facing in our nation are a bunch of very small personal battles at grassroots America that if those who profess to follow Jesus Christ would begin to turn around and pray upon evil and push back against evil and say, you know what, that's indecent. Like I did in a bookstore in uh, Grand Central Station in, in, in Manhattan about uh, six or eight months ago. I was there and I walked by a book and it had it had a title to a book that was a, that was a uh, it's a curse word, except it's a vulgar curse word. And I didn't go up with a Bible and beat the guy up who owned the store, but I just I just have to tell you, I was getting ready to buy some stuff, and I'm not going to buy anything because I'm really offended by by your book. And it it resulted in a very healthy conversation between that shop owner and me. 
And you had to wonder, how many people have walked by that book? I saw a little kid looking at it, a six-year-old kid. And indecency, vulgarity, evil is encroaching in our society. And the, the statement that was made, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do what? Nothing. Nothing. And so guess what? That's what we do. Because we think it's somebody else's battle. It's not mine. Well, you know what? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to fix every evil. I can't. There is a lot of evil today. Back to your original question, do I think things are more evil today? I, I don't think so. I think evil has more access to our lives in, in terms of privacy in our homes today than has ever existed. The Internet being piped into our homes, cable TV, uh, pornography is destroying a generation of boys. The, the average age boys are now being being taught to look at pornography is not 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's ages 8, 9, and 10. And the hardwiring of a boy's emotional system and sexual system are not connected. And we don't even have any idea of how the devil of hell is destroying young boys and their manhood in its very inception, in the germinating stages of what it means to be a young man. And that's my assignment as a dad, to attempt to build the truth into my life, into my family's life, so that truth hasn't stumbled in the streets. Truth is there pushing back against evil. You know, I like to liken it, Dennis, to the analogy of when you, you come in, say you've been out for the evening with the family, and you come into the house, the lights are all off, the room is very dark, and somebody might observe as you're walking through the front door, gee, it's pretty dark in here, but what's the first thing they call for? Turn on the lights. This room is not necessarily in a condition of having excessive darkness. What's really happening is there is a lack of light. And I think at the core, what you're suggesting here is that godly men need to turn on the light. And as they do so, that light will dispel darkness. The good will dispel evil. And then as you talk about the the stages, the steps of a man's life, And as he learns how to apply the principles from Scripture to lead and to protect and to serve and to model and and to defend our children, we can make a significant difference in spite of the fact that, as you suggest, you know, evil's got an easy pipeline into our homes these days with the Internet and cable television and all of these things that that surely make parenting today certainly more difficult, but not impossible because we have a weapon that God has given to us that that is as strong today as it was when that book was first written. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life, I believe, in his early 30s for his faith in Germany. He refused to join Hitler's army and was ultimately uh, became a martyr for his faith in Christ. But he made this statement. He said, it's the righteous man who lives for the next generation. Uh, Someone else said, our children are the living messengers we send to a time we will not see. Here's the question for a man, a father, a grandfather, maybe a single guy. What kind of message are you going to send to the next generation? What's your imprint on other people's lives for Jesus Christ that leaves the mark of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace... To, to imprint that on the next generation's 
lives. So they're going to make a difference when you're gone. So you're suggesting, Dennis, even today as we see a lot of debate about the debt ceiling and how we are passing this huge amount of indebtedness on to to future generations, to our children and our grandchildren, that perhaps for the Christian man, the question of what we're going to leave, the legacy that we will leave for future generations is is one of the even grander and, and more critical and more serious answer, isn't it? There's, in my opinion, the battleground for for the nation. We we certainly have to have fiscal responsibility. We have to have godly leaders in Washington D.C. and the state houses of all fifty states. But I'm going to tell you something: America has survived um, political corruption. It cannot survive the breakdown of its most basic unit, the family. No nation will survive that breakdown. Martin Luther King Jr. made this statement. He said, cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asked the question, is it politic? Vanity asked the question, is it popular? But conscience asked the question, is it right? And you said it a few minutes ago, Craig, I, I think it's, it's our choices. The choices we make, deciding to be God's man, and it's why I like the title of the book, Stepping Up. It's just amazing how often men use that with one another. Uh, You know, I I stepped up. I made the commitment. Um, Whether it's a single guy listening right now who's who's avoided making the commitment of marriage. There's a lot of guys today prolonging adolescence, wanting to be single and have fun and not assume responsibility well into their 30s. There are even those who are sociologists, Craig, who are recommending that we prolong adolescence for another 10 to 15 years. That's not the solution. That's not the kind of men we need today. We need guys who are willing to say, you know what? Give me the ball. Give me the responsibility. I'm going to fail. I may fail forward, but I'm going to step up. I'm going to attempt to make my mark for Jesus Christ and make a difference. I'm just one man. You're just one man, Craig. But... um, you know, each of us is given a sphere of responsibility. We, we try to do our best. I, I, I look at my life someday, and the, the longer I live, the more I believe the cross is the hope for me and all of, all of humanity because we are desperately sick with selfishness and sin. We have missed the mark. And so it's not a matter of being perfect, but it is a matter of stepping up in faith and saying, God, I want to be your man. We so often will take a look at the Sunday football game or the results of the baseball or basketball game and opine about certain players and say, you know, so-and-so just needs to step up. Maybe it's time now for each and every man in the faith to take that own advice. Stepping up, a call to courageous manhood. The new book, by the way, available through the Resource Ministry of Family Life at FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com. The broadcast, Family Life Today, weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And the author of Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, our special guest on this edition of Lifeline, Dennis Rainey. Dennis, as always, an education to visit with you, brother. Appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll catch you on the radio, as they say, uh, tomorrow at 8.30 (laughs) a.m. It's a privilege, Craig. Great to be with you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
It was a number of years ago in China, deep in the interior, that we had a chance to meet a man whose name really isn't important, but the work that he did for the kingdom was critically important. China, as you may or may not be aware, has more than 80 minority people groups, and this one man, concerned about his own people group and the fact that for the history of printed scripture, never had a Bible in their own language. God put the burden on his heart to translate God's Word, Genesis to Revelation, into his own minority people group's language so that they, for themselves, could read and study God's Word. So he set about the business of translating. took him about three and a half years to accomplish this, and finally, having done so, went to the business of printing these Bibles. Eventually, the communist authorities found out, came in, arrested him, put him in jail for three years, collected up all the Bibles, and destroyed the original printing plates. When he was released from jail three years later, the burden was no less great than it was in the beginning, and he set about for the second time in a row to translate the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation, with a burning passion in his heart that his own people group had to be able to read God's Word in their own language. Well, eventually the authorities caught on. This time came in collected up all the Bibles, destroyed those along with the printing plates, and sent him to jail for five years. When he was released from jail, you would have thought he had learned his lesson, that the authorities finally, after having spent the sum total of eight years in prison and receiving a number of beatings because he was translating God's Word, contrary to Chinese communist official authorities' desire, you thought he would have learned his lesson, but no. The impression that he had on his heart for the necessity of his own people to read God's Word in their own language, in fact, had grown stronger. And so for the third time in a row, he set about the business of translating God's Word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation. You wouldn't think much of the man to meet him. In fact, the day we met him, he was dressed in dirty jeans, a soiled jacket, and flip-flops. While wouldn't leave much of an impression to you by the eye, The stature of that man in the kingdom was as great as any of the apostles. The importance of people groups, minorities, be able to read God's Word in their own language all over the globe has been the goal of Wycliffe Bible translators for many, many years now. And, of course, many of us know the story of of Wycliffe. Joining me on the program today is Andy Ring. Andy is a translation advisor for Wycliffe Bible translators. Andy, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Craig, thanks for having me. You know, that story of the man that I met in China that time a number of years ago has left such an indelible impression on my heart at this very day. And I think a lot of us here in in the Western world, um, we take for granted the ease that we have, not just in the access to God's Word, but even the fact that it's available to us to read in our own language at all. Mm. Yeah, I'm. uh, that same story could be said over and over around the world, especially in West Africa, where I have worked for the last 30 years. We're seeing many people come forward with such a strong desire to translate the Bible into their own language. And uh, we in Wycliffe are, instead of just sending an individual to go to a remote area, we are now looking for those people who will come out and be trained to do their work and to do it even faster than we can. Help us understand in terms of the enormity of the challenge that um, organizations like Wycliffe are facing when we talk about um, the translation process 
of God's Word into a local minority or people group's language. Do you have any idea, Andy, just how many languages, how many people groups have yet to receive a copy of God's Word in their own language? Well, there are currently over 2,500 languages in the process of translation, and yet out of the world's just over 7,000 languages, we still have identified 2,400 that still need to be studied. And Wycliffe's goal, along with many other organizations who have gotten in, come into the picture in the last um, 10 years, have set the goal of starting each of these languages by 2025. And that, of course, is an enormous goal when we talk about, as you say, upwards of 2,000 languages that have yet to be translated, or are, some of which are still in process. And, and this notion of the importance of people being able to read God's Word in their own languages is critically important. You mentioned just before we came on the air today that you've just recently returned from Nigeria. I think of what is going on in that part of the world, uh, particularly with the onslaught of Islam coming in from the north. Uh, and that, of course, is true in, in many nations across the continent of Africa, but particularly troublesome for Nigeria. Uh, the onslaught of Islam is something that, uh, that can best be targeted by the truth of God's Word. But, but what do you do when there are minority people groups that can't read the Bible, or if they come to Christ, have no means of, of getting involved in discipleship, and as Scripture tells us, studying to show one's self-approved if you don't have anything to study? And I guess therein lies the huge challenge. That's it. In fact, uh, the literacy rate in many of these places is uh, five, one to five percent. And in the case of Nigeria, you have uh, one fifth of the population of Africa. You have one fourth of all languages. There, with uh, surveys that are currently going on, there are around 500 languages in that country. And though over the last uh, 40 years, work has started in about 125. It looks now like um, there are still 250 languages that need translation, where the people are not bilingual enough to to use another language, and sometimes that language, the trade language they use, is a language that encourages people to become Islamic. Mm-hmm. So our, our real hope is uh, to start uh, literacy development, uh, alphabet development, and to see the scriptures start to come into these languages. I know the, uh, the goal recently has been to not just start individual projects, but to invite chiefs of these communities to send appropriate people, people who have a level of education where they can uh, continue to be trained and to learn to translate God's Word for themselves, and really the excitement around that. I know um, five languages were invited to a workshop that started at the beginning of this year. Twelve communities sent workers, and uh, over 35 languages have been started just in the last five years. So there's a real multiplication of efforts. There's a cooperation between different agencies. And this is not something that's just limited to the Christian community, but everyone in those communities, including those from an Islamic background, want something written in their own language, because to think that God speaks their language is one of the most exciting things in a person's life. 
Indeed so. And of course, one of the most effective outreach tools that we can have as well. And Andy, you mentioned about that that target date of 2025. And I, I think even ahead of that, there's a sense of urgency. We speak of what's been going on um, in countries like Nigeria, Darfur, in the Sudan. We've seen that, of course, highlighted in international news. And so much of what is problematic in that part of the African continent has to do with the spread of Islam. And and what's troublesome is that we're seeing huge numbers of new believers coming to Christ every single day. Uh, One of the fastest growing churches, in fact, anywhere on planet Earth uh, is located in in Lagos, Nigeria. And uh, to watch people coming in by the droves, uh, accepting Jesus Christ. But now... They speak a minority language or read a minority language, not having access to God's Word. This becomes problematic because there's no way to get them into a firm foundation. They can't get involved in in study programs unless it's in a group fellowship kind of a thing because they don't have access to God's Word. And so we, we run the risk of these believers falling away as quickly as they come to Christ because there's no effective means by which they might be immersed in the study and application of God's Word. This is what makes the work of Wycliffe so critically important. And um, toward that end, Andy, you're going to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, sharing with folks over the course of a number of days uh, a lot of not just the work that you have been doing personally uh, there on the continent of Africa, what's going on in Nigeria, but a, a glimpse into the urgency of this throughout, I understand, the entire 1040 window. Yes, Craig, uh, that, that is what we're here to do. I've, like I said, I've just come back from Africa about two weeks ago specifically to help out in this effort to make the work of Wycliffe known to people the opportunity to take part in the excitement, the challenge, really, the challenge of uh, going to these places and equipping local people to do the work and to see it challenge of reaching these communities by 2025. This is, this is our hope. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to share. And as you point out, in most of these countries, uh, it is a team effort as people are coming together, they're sending volunteers, they're dedicating themselves to assist those working in Bible translation. And that sense of team effort really expands beyond local communities. It expands beyond the work of the Wycliffe Bible translators to you and me. Uh, to, number one, learn of what God is doing, what the opportunities are, what the challenges are, and then what we can do to step up and fill the gap and and partner with organizations like Wycliffe to make a difference. And as Andy mentioned, we are watching millions swept away into eternity without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wycliffe Associates volunteers are aiding in that struggle to help stem that tide by helping Bible translators concentrate on the goal of, of Vision 2025, that can provide translations for people living throughout the 1040 window uh, to reach that goal. And it's an urgent goal in doing so. And our thanks to Andy Ring for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Andy, safe travels to you. And again, thanks so much for your time. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.